What's up, people? I'm Erica. And I'm Hillary. And this is Cocktails and Capitalism. This week, we're drinking the Coal Miner's Daughter, which includes one and a half ounces of bourbon, one teaspoon of ginger syrup, three quarters ounce of lemon juice, three quarters ounce of honey, a lavender sprig, and some ice. And that's basically it. Hillary looked up how to make the ginger syrup. Do you want to tell people how to do that? Yeah, I um, didn't have, I had everything but the ginger syrup. So like, I wonder if I can make it because I had ginger. My husband had just recently gotten a whole bag of ginger because I'm on a smoothie kick and all that jazz. So (laughs) I had ginger. I love ginger and smoothies. Oh, it's so good, right? Yeah. So I quickly looked it up. It's just a cup of chopped up ginger, fresh ginger, and then um, a cup of sugar and three quarters cup of water. And you bring it all to a boil, let it simmer for 15 minutes, and then let it cool for an hour with the ginger still in it. And then after it's all nice and cool and ready to handle, you strain the ginger and you've got your ginger syrup. And it is <laughs> so bomb. It's delicious. So good. I, yeah, I'm really excited about I it. I feel like I want to have ginger syrup on hand all the time for whatever it's cocktail same, I want to make. Same. <laughs> it makes me want to like try to make other syrups too. You know? <laughs> yeah, really definitely. We could make some like mint syrup. I'm sure we'll get creative with this. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're going to share all these good syrup and cocktail recipes with everybody, you know? Hell yeah. Get everybody in on it. (laughs) (laughs) And I was thinking we should try to start, if we know ahead of time which episode we're doing for the next week, give them the recipe ahead of time so that then they can... That's what the Instagram's for. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. (laughs) There we go. We'll just uh, blast it there. 100%. And what's our Instagram handle? It's Cocktails and Capitalism. Sweet. Yeah, very easy to find. We're the like the only cocktail and capitalism related Instagram. Yeah. So <laughs> if you put that in the search on Insta, you're going to find us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Go find us. Yeah, you can find us on Twitter too now. The handle is actually Cocked Capitalism because I couldn't spell out both words. Which is kind of appropriate, right? Yeah. Cocked Capitalism. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of cocked. It's ready to blow. <laughs> So uh, I chose the coal miner's daughter for this this episode because it deeply relates to the theme, and it's actually what people were drinking back in the day when the story is about. Ooh. In this episode, I'm going to explore the birth of American policing, focusing on the corporate police forces that emerged in Pennsylvania. Oh, damn. My mind was kind of blown when I found out that there were corporate police forces and that they were some of the earliest police forces around. So I was like, yeah, that's wild. Corporate police forces. Owned by companies. (laughs) Right. Before the 1800s, there were virtually no recognizable police forces anywhere in the world. Ancient societies mostly used interpersonal mediation to resolve disputes, but this kind of conflict resolution didn't work as well in large cities around the world. During America's colonial period, which was like the 1500s until independence in 1776, Americans followed the British model for establishing order, erecting a system of common law with sheriffs, constables, and watchmen. These officers did not receive a salary, but were instead paid by private citizens. So that's kind of susceptible to corruption, too, if you can just hire. 100%. Yeah. So who, may I interrupt and ask a question? Yeah, for sure. I might not know. (laughs) Yeah. 
that's totally fine. We're not claiming to be experts here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, we may, you know, Google it later and figure it out and share it with you guys later. Exactly. Um, but who were these people? Who were these? I I didn't look into the private citizens that were hiring police back in those days, but it had to be the wealthiest people that could afford to hire. Who could people. afford yeah. it? Yeah. So yeah, automatically it selects for the upper class. Mm-hmm. Is there any regulation on that today? On people having police forces like that? Yeah. Well, there's totally private military contractors, which we'll probably talk about in other episodes, but it's a sick and twisted thing that's going on, Blackwater and the like. Wow. When you have a a monetary incentive to go to war, what do you think is going to (laughs) happen? Right. Absolutely. So these officers, okay, they were paid by private citizens. Constables were on duty during the day executing writs like summonses and arrest warrants to help maintain order and warn off danger, the night watch system began to emerge in the 1600s. It was composed of individuals who volunteered for certain time slots. Boston was the first city to create one in 1638. This system wasn't very effective, especially since many of the watchmen slept or drank while on duty. I mean, what cocktails were they enjoying? I know. (laughs) I I didn't look into that. Not cool, but wow. Yeah, totally. I wonder what. Yeah, it's totally okay for you to have this super important job and go ahead and, and, you know, drink on the job, whatever. Just get as wasted as you want. And uh, yeah. That is crazy. Okay, keep going. Keep going. Yeah, totally. What? There's a lot of that, dude. Should that Get. be the phrase for this episode? What yeah. the what? What the what? <laughs> what the what? Double what what? <laughs> Sorry. So, no, I love it. So like most early forms of policing, the Night Watch was created to control poor minorities in America and would arrest any black person who couldn't prove that they were free. <sighs> so, and then Indian... And cue the heart sink. Yeah. <laughs> So in a a similarly uplifting note, Indian constables in New England were created for a similar purpose to control and guard against the Native Americans. Mm -hmm. So before the Civil War, law enforcement in the southern states had a very specific purpose to control the massive population of enslaved black people. It's estimated that between 1525 and 1866, 12 million people were kidnapped from their homes in Africa and shipped to the New World, which... Pause. Yeah. Say that number again. 12 million people. 12 million people. Kidnapped. Jeez. Yeah. That's just, that's just kind of unfathomable to me. Like, that's just, and okay, keep going. More keep than going. 2 million of those people didn't survive the trip overseas, which was horrible and atrocious and yeah, just the worst. Right. Those 12 million weren't only going to the U.S., they were going to North America, South America, and the Caribbean, and about... Only about half a million of those people were brought to North America, which is still a fuckload of people. Right. Yeah, that's a lot. So about half a million of these people were brought to North America. Slaveholders were eager to find ways to prevent their slaves from escaping, and they lived in constant fear of insurrection. America's first slave patrol was created in Carolina in 1704, and like the slave patrols that followed, this force was created to guard the, quote, property of slaveholders standing ready to crush slave uprisings. In other words, Southern policing was about maintaining the economic order that was structured around slavery, allowing slaveholders to keep and continue to profit from their human capital. Here 
is the official oath of the patrollers in northern Carolina in North Carolina. So this is an oath they would take before. Yeah, as they become okay. these officers, as they were, you know, starting their their on the drinking job. Yeah, yeah, basically, because these people had yeah. no like qualifications or training or anything like that. Do you know the? Do you by any chance run across um, information on like the average age of these individuals? I think a lot of the time it was they were pretty young. I don't know. I can imagine. I don't I know what imagine. the lifespan was back then, but it probably wasn't that. Oh, that's another thing to Yeah. I th- yeah, so they're probably just babies. Yeah. So here so this is the oath that they would say as they became um, part of the slave patrol. I, patroller's name, do swear that I will search for guns, swords, and other weapons among the slaves in my district faithfully. And as privately as I can, discharge discharge the trust repose in me as the law directs to the best of my power, so help me God. Participation in these patrols was mandatory for almost all white men, both rich and poor. So if you had to be part of the slave patrol, but some people could pay to get other people to do the role for them. So you could kind of opt out. So then it kind of became lower class, I think. Um, thus it tended to create a sense of unity and equality among poor whites. So like we, let's all go and repress these people together. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. It almost came, became like a, like a band for them. Like, right. Like they almost like a unity for them. Uh, exactly. A unifying, definitely a unifying thing. If all of you have to do it, it's not so crazy. That blew my mind yeah. when I learned that. I know that that's really kind of crazy. Like how, do you know how, um, they would regulate that? No, but I did hear something about how women, like land-owning women, were expected to join, but they could also just choose a dude to do that for them. So women who don't own land were kind of like off. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? That would have been my jam back then. (laughs) No, no, it would not have been. It would be awful. No, you would have hated everybody. Yeah, for sure. Oh, my God. I could not tolerate it. (laughs) That is so weird. Like... Okay, keep going. Just, I'm, I'm like, it's just, yeah, my mind's a little blown. Just keep it's going. It's super fucked. Just, just, yeah, it's super fucked. Uh, keep going. All right, babe. <laughs> so the members of these patrols wielded their own weapons. They would spread terror, physically brutalizing black people into submission as they roved about, which is kind of like the roving patrol officer these days Mm -hmm. what's more they were allowed to forcibly enter any house they chose without notice or permission so there is zero regulation yeah zero regulation they they had their oath but they had no rules on how to do their job and no qualifications no like skills (laughs) you know and like yeah they're not trained in how to do it they basically got to use their own discretion about the laws that they were aware of and how to apply them you know (laughs) By hunting down and punishing slaves, patrols worked to preserve the economic order of the times. Every single slaveholding state had established these patrols by the time John Adams became the second U.S. president, which was in 1797. When the Confederacy surrendered in 1865, this ended the reign of these patrols. Nevertheless, while the 13th Amendment abolished slavery, it included a clause stating that slavery could continue to be used as a punishment for a crime. This means that slavery... Oh, my... I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. I totally didn't know that. It, Holy cow. It's so messed. This means that slavery was simply re- relegated to a new domain, and the desire for profit from free labor would continue to incentivize the imprisonment of black people in America. Which I'm sure that people were still all about. Oh, yeah. They were just... They were uh, literally just snatching people off the streets to feed them into yeah. it. Uh, 
So black codes were passed consisting of laws that criminalized those who had been emancipated. Soon, sheriffs in the South took on the role of the earlier slave patrols, disenfranchising slaves, and forcing segregation. Lacking formal police forces like the ones that had appeared in the North, Southern leaders empowered vigilante groups like the KKK to help surveil and police the black population. The Klan came to dominate the South to such an extent that the federal government actually occupied post-Confederate states to halt their brutal oppression of black citizens. They fucking took over that much at one point. When I learned that, I was like, what the fuck? (laughs) They had a lot of power then. They had an unchecked power. And they had been given power by by some of the people in power who were like, yes, go out and patrol. Like, you're going to do. Was there anyone standing up against them at that time or no? Other people would have been up in arms about that. I don't know the details. I I do want to just keep reading and reading and reading about this, though. Why don't you get your second PhD? I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, never again. <laughs> never again. Police forces had a very different start in the northern states. The north was rocked by strikes and riots during the early 1800s. For a while, these riots took placed three or four times a year, but this increased to once a month in the 20s. Skilled tradesmen organized three huge strikes and built a movement to limit the workday to 10 hours. Limit the workday to to 10 hours. hours, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck you. Exactly. (laughs) And it's like children, too. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Everyone. Thankfully, we have labor laws now. Yes. Holy God. All right, sorry, keep going. No, no, you feel free. You bitch. (laughs) You bitch. (laughs) In 1826, whites rioted for three days straight, destroying the houses and churches of black people and of white ministers who condemned slavery. So, like, white people just having riots to, to like, attack black to people. To keep slavery. Yeah, yeah. 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 Like, and this... Really like the, what we're doing. Yeah. We're just going to, like, make sure that we can keep doing Good this. Job. We're going to do everything white in our people. power. Like, you know. <laughs> Golly. In the, and also, in the first three decades, black New Yorkers rioted four times to prevent freed slaves from being returned to their masters. So, one of the first cities to establish a police force was Boston. It was a bustling commercial center even then, and capitalists wanted greater protection for their property. An article in Time magazine talks about how, quote, these merchants came up with a way to save money by transferring the cost of maintaining a police force to citizens by arguing that it was for the collective good. (laughs) (laughs) Can can, can we get in? Wait, is there more about the public good? Like, what on earth did they mean by that? Like... (laughs) <laughs> well, we need protection, so we need to do this. And you, all of you tax citizens, you have to pay for that, not Those us. Those are legit their arguments. That is such a crap of shit. Yeah. Like, oh, it's so bad. A crock of shit. Oh, my God. <laughs> a crap uh, of shit. A crap of shit. <laughs> well, I like that better. <laughs> I kind of do, too, actually. It's a little bit more accurate, right? Like, a crock of shit? Like, yeah, who shits in a crock? <laughs> nobody, ever. I mean, I haven't like, no yet, so... I haven't either. I've shit in a lot of places. One of them is not a crock. (laughs) All right, moving on. In 1838, Boston established the first publicly funded police force that employed full-time officers, and soon municipal police departments began to appear all over the North. 
These departments were an answer to the unrest stemming from economic and racial inequality as rich property owners and politicians feared the poor masses of white immigrants and black ex-slaves. So this is still kind of part of the private citizens hiring police kind of deal. Is that part of that or so was there that kind this of was at, in Boston at that time? This is now trying to put it into the public domain, make make the government pay for it by taxing people. Okay, okay. All right, no, yeah, that makes more sense. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to kind of go back and forth between these different forms of policing a little bit. Yeah, sorry. I know. No, 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 no. Uh, sorry that I'm having, I'm like the greatest at keeping up. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's, it's, I'm horrible. It's, it is truly kind of confusing though like I didn't Mm -hmm. quite realize that this is how our police force was kind of evolving and you know over these centuries right like it's we're talking about a long period of time here Mm -hmm. and we're talking about a lot of changes and a lot of different places with a lot of different beliefs so it's 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 crazy totally there's a lot going on here by the 1800s, rudimentary policing bodies existed in all major U.S. cities. Okay. These forces were incredibly susceptible to, to corruption as sergeants and police captains were selected by political party leaders. Police would overlook the illegal activities of politicians in return for payoffs. They were often tasked with harassing opponents of the party. Wait, can we have that back? <laughs> <laughs> can it? I mean, is it wrong for me to ask that? Uh, Yes, it's very wrong. (laughs) Sorry. No, you're good. I mean, I mean, let's like fucking keep these politicians in line somehow. Well, no, no, no. This is that's the opposite of what they were doing. They were being elected by the political party leaders, the people in power, so that then they would just not pay attention to whatever they would oh, get paid. Okay. So All they right. I had that 100 100%. 100%. <laughs> 180 degrees flipped. <laughs> That's fine. Right. It's I I felt like that when I was scoring through the history so much Dude, of I it. can imagine that this research was like crazy for you. Like like really diving into this topic and like getting into all the details and like digging more deeper and deeper and deeper. Like were there at points in your in like looking up this cool topic like where you were just like holy shit oh my god am i in all of this mess so much so much yeah i can imagine i cried during the research of this and i cried during the research of my second episode too (laughs) babe girl but like i wish you would call me no i'm not gonna tell you what the fuck these are about so you don't have to tell me what you're crying about oh thank you I might, just to be like, boo, I'm a baby. I can't handle the truth. <laughs> it's, truth is not what we get in school, so it, it sucks when you start to get it, you know? <laughs> I mean, when you study when you study the sciences, though, you get a lot of truth. Yeah, that's but, true. Uh, that's but true. But other than that, nah. I mean, like, when you're in high school and getting history, Totes. <laughs> especially. Totes. These police were tasked with harassing opponents of the parties in power, and in the North, the police began targeting anyone who was a threat to order, arresting people for vague crimes like disorderly conduct and vagrancy. And in the South, police would arrest black people only to feed them into the convict labor system, essentially preserving the institution of slavery in another form of unpaid labor and imprisonment. Yeah. Which goes on to this very day. To, to like to today like like the the unpaid or oh or God. horrifically paid labor of right, prisoners right, right, right. yeah there's there's a lot of awful shit about that which we will get into in future episodes fucked. it's so fucked so it's like we have slavery today it's just in a different sphere of society that has yeah. the capitalism has found a way to monetize you know 
and mm-hmm. it's, I mean, it, it continued to monetize the whole time. So it's so fucked. Wow. But okay, so now by the mid 1800s, coal was being extracted in America at an increasing rate because mm-hmm. rapid deforestation had drastically increased the price of wood. Coal became the fuel that urban Americans relied on. While the more common bituminous, I think that's how you say it, bituminous coal produced a lot of smoke, anthracite coal burned much more cleanly, making it the preferred fuel for households and cities. This resource became vital to the development of American capitalism, fueling other industries like the construction of railroads and the production of steel. The main source of anthracite coal was northeastern Pennsylvania, Around mid-century, Pennsylvania law enforcement was very basic, consisting only of sheriffs assigned to separate counties. Because the coal and iron operators wanted more protection for their property, they made their case to politicians who passed State Act 228. This 1865 act empowered the mines and railroads to organize their own corporate police forces. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) Just when I thought it couldn't get worse. I know, exactly, exactly. The whole time. Oh, it gets worse. Uh, sorry. Uh, I'm sorry, Hillary. <laughs> you could have warned me. Uh, I think I'm I, just kidding. Uh, I think I have been a little bit, but I'm going to try to uh, do a little bit. some uplifting a little bit. things. <laughs> <laughs> so immediately the coal and iron police were born. Established by the state, but employed and paid by the coal companies, these police forces were entirely in the pockets of their corporate employers. Only a year after the 1865 Act was passed, a supplemental act extended the privilege of creating private police forces to, quote, all, corporate, all corporations, firms, or individuals owning, leasing, or being in the possession of any colliery, furnace, or rolling mill within this commonwealth. So anyone that basically has, like, a factory or a mill you can employ your own police force to help guard it and the surrounding area and police everyone. So by purchasing commissions from the governor's office for a dollar a piece, the mine owners could now assign officer status to anyone they chose. So explain, yeah. explain the difference between that and like a business owner today, like a nightclub hiring a security guard, because I think that's important to differentiate. I think that's something that I was like, I need to dive more deeply into because we obviously the com- companies can have security guards. They can employ their own guards still, but they don't have forces to the extent I think that this was. Uh-huh. But also there's just private companies that are for hire militaries little well, and mini... i think that the intent behind this having the security is a mm-hmm. little different so behind having uh, correct me if i'm wrong you mean behind having it today in in these places yes i mean maybe that's probably more about like don't steal our stuff yeah i mean this was very explicitly about like preventing uprisings because they're shitting on these people so hard <laughs> right right yeah mm-hmm. i think that that's very important to highlight and to talk about yeah. because I think that somebody could hear that and it can very easily just be glossed over like, oh, that's not a problem. Yeah. No, actually it is. Yeah. And we need to talk about it. But I don't really know the extent of that right now. I don't know the extent to which companies can, you know, big, big corporations can do that. Um, I don't know the laws against it, but that's something that mm-hmm. would be really, really fascinating to dive into more. Yeah. These officers were mostly free of oversight and they were often made up of hoodlums and common gunmen. 
Their explicit purpose was to protect property, but in reality, they operated as strike breakers and as the eyes and ears of the corporation. This private police force would intimidate mine workers, forcibly evicting striking workers and their families from their homes. They would patrol the community, provoking the kind of conflicts that would serve as justification for harsh policing. These officers were frequently accused of assault, rape, kidnapping, and murder. Mine workers came to view the coal and iron police in a negative light, calling them Cossacks and Yellow Dogs. Um, and I kind of forget what the Yellow Dogs thing was. I think it's like Yellow Dog is like a cowardly thing. And I think they're saying like you're cowardly to be breaking these unionized forces. And Yeah, that's an interesting little nickname there. Yeah, I, I, I looked into a bit, but I forgot some of what I read. <laughs> no, well, it's okay. It sounds like you, you know, did a shit ton of research. I did. I did a lot. Yeah. In the book, Private Police, <laughs> speaking of which, with special reference to Pennsylvania, author Shalou states that there was, quote, no consideration, nor was there any attempt on the part of any responsible authority to determine the character or fitness of the persons for whom commissions were sought. There was no investigation, no regulation, no supervision, no responsibility undertaken by the state. And I mean, that's kind of not, I mean, I probably shouldn't no, say this because I don't, I don't know how accurate this is, but... I kind of feel like that's, you know, kind of the kind of the problem of what's happening today. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, yeah. I, so like I, I hesitate because I'm I just don't know and I don't want to just spout no. the mouth if I'm wrong. But I have just randomly heard from like other podcasts oh, yeah. and, you know, news sources and whatever that, you know, we, there's just not a whole lot that goes into oh, yeah. police training totally. and requirements for our police force That's and oversight scary, of our know? police forces and like ability to fire people because they have police unions that make it so basically they can't get fired even though they've had you know their repeat offenders right right okay so i mean it's not too oh no to you- say like this is 100 percent you know, part of the problem. It would be wrong to say there's no regulation, no supervision, no responsibility. Yeah. But you're totally right that this is partially what's happening right now. So, and part of the reason why people are are out in the streets and furious because they've been able to get away with horrific abuse for so long, Uh but hopefully that's going to change soon because of pressure that's being put on people right now. I mean, yeah, things have definitely changed. Yeah. Already, like, and they're, you know, in the process of changing today. Yeah, so. definitely. But we'll, I mean, we will see. It's unfolding right now. The racial yeah. narrative in this country right now is so crazy. It's a very timely topic. Yeah. I keep thinking that people just couldn't handle Obama and just fucking lost their shit afterwards. And the blacklash of all of that is Trump yeah. and all yeah. of this other insanity. No, there's there's a humongous, you know, part of the American population that is not okay with progressive ideas yeah. and different races. Yeah. Shitty stuff like that. It's so and it's fucking insane. Mm-hmm. So many of us, I think, thought that we were so much further ahead in our racial relations in this country. Oh, totally. Like, oh, totally. I don't, there's no, I don't see race. I, you know, I don't deal with racism. I don't see it ever. Like, I, people literally are still saying that, but it's insane. Oh, totally, totally. It, you definitely still hear that yeah. today. I think the hard, like, just to, like, throw this little, like, personal nugget out there, like, I even remember thinking myself, like, well, I mean, I'm not racist. Like, yeah. no one's racist. And that is just so fucking inaccurate. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember the first time that I actually witnessed racism and it floored 
me. It, it just completely, my jaw was to the fucking goddamn floor. I was like, are you, you serious? You have to right tell now? me this what happened. You have to say. <laughs> um, uh, just super quick. Um, I was um, living in Virginia at the time. This was about 10 years ago. I was in a tutoring class and the tutor was talking about her grandmother's cat, um, who her grandmother called N baby. Mm. And she kept saying, I, there was, mind you, there's the one black girl in that school yeah. was sitting right next to me. Mm. Um, and uh, we were just trying to learn some math. And this girl is going on and on and on about end baby, end baby, mm. end baby. She said it like 15 times before I said, listen, mm. you cannot say that word any longer. Yeah. Good, good, there good, is, good, good. I, I told her, I was like, just, just stop it. Like that is really inappropriate and it's insensitive. Never just again stop. in your life. <laughs> Thankfully, oh, I hope, but I doubt it. Yeah, yeah. She oh, was no, kind no, of, no. kind of a, mm-mm. I hope. Anyways, um, it, I mean, it, it just floored me. I was like, is this really happening right yeah. now? It, it was, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It really ripped my eyes open because I, I mean, I had just moved to Virginia. So I came from like, you know, super liberal California where like, you know, I'd, I'd really hadn't experienced racism before. And then I moved to Virginia and within a month, you know, I, I experienced this girl just dropping that word. Oh my God. Like uh, it's no problem. I'm like, excuse you, excuse yeah. you. You, you may not, yeah. you know? Yeah. I, I will definitely say that it was a much more, you know, rural part of Virginia. There are yeah. definitely, you know, some much more like chill, progressive yeah. places in Virginia. I don't want to just like shit on a whole state. Like <laughs> <that>. <laughs> However, yeah. uh, it, that was a very alarming experience for me, uh, for sure. Yeah, there's so much of it alive and well. Yeah, it's a poison. Yeah, yeah. All right, so I'm going to continue here. Please do. I want to give you an idea of the horrible conditions the miners suffered through. Methane leaks often caught fire, burning, or suffocating the miners to death, and many contracted black lung from breathing in coal dust in the poorly ventilated mine shafts. Some died from nitrogen dioxide and other pollutants released during mining. Sometimes the mash, mine shafts flooded, drowning workers. In the 20 years after 1870, roughly 32,000 coal miners died on the job. So 20 years, 32,000 people die. But to put that into some present-day perspective, it's estimated that even right now, a million people die a year from coal pollution even today oh my god yeah and we're still like let's keep those coal jobs and keep digging yeah, it let's, out let's keep those coal jobs especially keep those coal jobs from those immigrants yeah. Yeah, we, we want to work our coal jobs you uh, just make some other jobs god there's, uh, there's so many ways yeah. to make jobs but we're just not doing it no we're not at all another topic <laughs> so many yep so while miners were forced to risk their lives for little pay, the public was not on their side. The press portrayed strikers as wild beasts who needed to be shot down. One newspaper made the declaration, let the leaders of these riots be hunted down and arrested. If they will oh, learn, God. yeah, if they will learn tolerance only by being shot down, it is better to shoot them down than to let them shoot others. Literally, how these people were seen for wanting that is for wanting a wage that would sustain their lives. You know, yeah. God forbid they ask. Yeah, give me a fucking fucking assholes. (laughs) Go back to your hole. (laughs) Go go back to your hole. (laughs) All right. So when the coal and iron police 
um, and a band of armed vigilantes began targeting and killing labor organizers, this violence had public support. By waylaying, ambushing, and killing strikers and organizers, the mine owners succeeded in obliterating obliterating the existing unions. Sorry, I can't talk. <laughs> you can indeed. You're good. <laughs> Um, by the end of the century, the mine operators had es- established an oligopoly within their industry. So an oligopoly is basically a small group of sellers that totally dominate an industry. And so they control the prices and they can completely mm-hmm. obliterate all the competition. They can just get rid of that. Oh, my God. So, And that's basically what we have in the U.S. right now. So, like, yeah. So step back five seconds. Uh So you said that they obliterated the unions. So they had some unions. They had they had some form of protection, perhaps. So these, yeah, they kept trying to form unions, and the Pinkerton Detective Agency had a lot to do with trying to destroy these unions. There were just constant campaigns to kill the people that were were leading the unions, evict people from their homes. Even in some cases, I think they just fired everyone and said you could never work here again. But that was after killing people. Yeah. But like abusing other people. So, (laughs) yeah. Okay. Yeah. Jesus. So corrupt. Yeah. But they did have some unions, which is wonderful. And they kept forming them. And they, you know, in the face of. That's just really surprising to even hear that they had that. Yeah. I just kind of wonder, like, what happened with, like, the force behind starting those unions? Like, how come that momentum didn't carry forth, right? Like,. It sounds like they kind of failed, and I want to know more about like what happened behind the crippling of those unions. Yeah, there are a lot of great unions today. I I have friends that are working for some unions. Um, I think that they are somewhat waning in power, though, in some places. But we should definitely mm-hmm. do some episodes about that. I think unions are fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> they, they provide a lot of protective measures, mm-hmm. and I think that if you know more companies. And more jobs had involvement with unions that we'd be better off. But again, another episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna dig in. So the Lay and Wilkes Bar Coal Company cut pay for their workers and laid many people off in eighteen ninety seven. They also raised the housing costs for miners and their families who were forced to live on company towns, which still happens today. The wonderful company that sells almonds and cuties and fiji water and these people that they own the water rights in a lot of california they're just total yeah okay cue the band (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) this happens today but they have these little towns of basically people that are working harvesting different crops and they have to work live in these company towns they have to buy only their water they have to only buy their food they have to like there's just subjected to all of their shit it's crazy oh my god i would hate to live there with insane hours yeah. and oftentimes limited facilities like and they probably know that they're illegal and so they zero protection they can right. take advantage and of so them so they can just completely trample on yeah. them yeah Ugh. awful shit Protesting these developments, a mass of 3,000 workers succeeded in shutting down the mines in Pennsylvania. So this is after they raised the housing costs and were evicting people from their homes. The the coal operators declared a state of civil disorder and called upon the Luzerne County Sheriff James F. Martin to help crush the strike. Believing that the coal and iron police were too few in number to control the workers, Martin quickly deputized a posse of about 100 English and Irish citizens— These officers stood ready to control the Eastern European immigrant workers. 
Only a few days later, around 9,000 miners were on strike. Sheriff Barton responded by calling out 2,500 Pennsylvania National Guard troops. So, like, National Guard, they're just sending in, like, everyone. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Are you are you sure you're reading from your research, or are you reading, like, an article? <laughs> right now? Yeah, 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 like, I know, like I know. Seriously. Like, like, yeah. <laughs> shit. Isn't it fucked? Oh, my God. That's that's one of the reasons it's why I, was, so I need needed to do this one, because, like, I don't know. I think it shines so much light on so much about policing, but then also about different forms of policing. No wonder we have these practices. We've been doing this for centuries. And like, I guess like, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm speaking for myself here, but I guess I didn't realize that we had been doing this for centuries. Yeah. And I'm sure yeah. there are plenty others that had, you know. Not that long ago, I was like oblivious to much of this, you know, so much of this. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're shining light on it right now, girl. Yeah. <laughs> cheers. I don't think we ever cheers before. Oh, cheers. cheers my love. Cheers. <laughs> I feel like I need to get like a glass here. This is here. seriously a delicious drink. It's, I'm just. It's so good. Ugh. It's quickly becoming one of my favorites. You don't have the lavender sprig, unfortunately, but it does add like a nice little aroma as you're sipping it. It's really I can imagine. I you know, with COVID I didn't want to run out mm-hmm. and get lavender. I did, however, put a nice little um lemon rind little Ooh, spiral. Very in nice. Here. <laughs> I love that. So I've got a little a lemon twist. Yeah. <laughs> a little lemon twist, if you will. Yes. <laughs> I forget what it's but like. no, not you know, it's not as lovely and you know, as aromatic as um lavender would have been. Yeah. But. No, that's awesome. I thought about doing that as well, but I'm glad you did it. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> I did it for you. Thank you, Hill. <laughs> oh, you're welcome, my love. <laughs> no, cheers, cheers. babe. <laughs> I need something to clink on. All right. I know, seriously. Let's do like a fake clink. There Yay. we go. Here, we did it. <laughs> we did. I guess our listeners should uh, also like be aware that like we're definitely not in the same room. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> That's why we're like doing weird things like clinking our own glasses. <laughs> we can't clink our glasses, I know. That's what... you know, across a screen. <laughs> I can shake my ice. My ice is melted. I don't have any more ice. I'm just like shaking the last little bit of cocktail in my beverage or in my glass. Oh, I have a second one in the fridge, but I don't want to run down there. I should have made it back up too. Little refill (laughs) action. And then like a little cooler with some ice. Totally. (laughs) For the next one, I'm going to do that shit. (laughs) All right. (laughs) So on September 10th, Between 300 and 400 workers marched to Latimer Coal Mine in support of the new United Mine Workers Union. May I ask what year this is? So this is... um, Just to get a refresh. This is like 1897, I believe, is right at the turn of the century. So yeah, and this is after the other, the last union had been crushed, but they formed this new one. Okay, good refresh. Thank you. Uh Uh-huh. So a man carried an American flag at the head of the crowd as the unarmed strikers marched peacefully behind. Multiple sources state that the officers had spent the morning joking about how many strikers they would kill. Yeah. One deputy told his fellow officers, I bet I drop six of them when I get down there. With Sheriff Martin in the lead, 150 armed deputies met up with the marchers. The sheriff ordered the workers to disperse, but they refused. 
<clears throat> in a childish attempt to seize control of the situation, Martin tried to grab the flag from the man at the front of the crowd, leading to a scuffle. The sheriff escalated the situ situation once again by drawing his pistol and firing into the crowd, but his pistol failed. Oh. <laughs> <Fucking> <laughs> but then his people well, backed yeah, him up. Yeah. Following his lead... The officers shot a hundred rounds into the crowd, killing at least 19 miners and injuring many more. Some were even shot in the back as they ran. This was called the Latimer Massacre. Damn. So from the standpoint of the mine operators, the main cost of production was what they paid in wages, and they were extremely resistant to increasing this expenditure. Nevertheless, in response to the strikes and pressure from the McKinley administration, the mine operators agreed to a 10% increase in pay. Resenting this concession, the mine owners and operators braced themselves for future conflicts. They were led by George Bayer, the president of the Reading Railroad, which employed thousands of miners. Speaking of the strikers and the officers at his disposal, Bayer wrote that the, quote, rights and interests of the laboring man will be protected and cared for, not by the labor agitators, but by the Christian men to whom God in his infinite wisdom has given the control of the property interests of this country. Oh my God, wait a second. So, 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 so. <laughs> Go ahead. So let's see. This extremely crooked man is now completely in the right because he's a godly man, yeah? Is that, is that, is that what we're here? <laughs> I think there's probably a very simple equivalency there back in the day. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like to say that that like rich people are they're endowed by God. That's what makes them rich. So right. you can't question that. Right. Not <laughs> yeah, by their like, logic, no. But uh, under the pretext of guarding workers from strikers, Bear enlisted 5,000 coal and iron police to guard the mines. When the mine operators continuously refused to hear workers' grievances, workers organized again. The president of the United Mine Workers of America was John Mitchell, who had spent his childhood as an, as an orphan working in the mines. What a fucking childhood. Yeah, that's so shitty. Having no one and being like, I'm going to work today. I remember, like, <laughs> okay, my childhood was, like, making mud pies in my backyard and camping and, like, mm -hmm. putting daisies in my hair and all that silly-ass shit. And this guy's like, yeah, yeah, I was a coal miner as a child. A child? <laughs> yeah. What? The amount of knowledge that this guy and, like, worldly wisdom he must have had at, like, 10 years old. That's true. Old That's actually very would... true. But, I mean... I mean, that's no, you know, doesn't make up for the fact that he was horribly yeah. mistreated in his, his youth. I mean, that it's childhood. not worth having that knowledge. No, 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 no child should no. have that knowledge no, no, ever. No, 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 <laughs> Not at all. But, but I love this character. By now, union membership had grown to 80% of the workers in this region. 80% of people are in the union. After trying repeatedly to negotiate with the mine operators, Mitchell led 147,000 workers to walk out of the mines. That's so many fucking yeah. people. It's a big movement. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> yeah, I'm about it. This is going from being an orphan who's working in the mines to leading 147,000 people. He's a fucking hero. <laughs> yeah, he's about us. For good? Yeah. yeah. That's Fuck awesome. Yeah. <laughs> So this is the start of the Great Strike of 1902. Okay, so now we're in 1902. I like having yeah. dates. I like yeah. I like knowing like the progression here. I'm a timeline girl, you know. 
Sometimes uh, I will forget where I'm at in the timeline because my brain is so bad at sorting oh. these things out. That's why I was not a history person. Same. I liked philosophy. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Abstraction and theories and stuff, much better. But anyway, so the workers demanded an eight-hour workday and 20% wage increase and the recognition of their union. Boom. Yes. Boom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> fuck yeah. So legit, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. So not like I'm not. They're not asking for ridiculous shit. You know. Like, no, it's reasonable. I love it's, that. Like that's awesome. It's for their ability to stay alive and to be okay. You know, <laughs> like. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Mitchell tried to pressure the operators to meet the workers' demands. He announced that he would flood the mine shafts by ordering the pumpmen and engineers to leave if their demands weren't met. <laughs> this is some good oh, destruction <laughs> you know what about that capital you got over there what do you think about that yeah. what if I just uh, totally destroy it <laughs> what if I just fuck that shit yeah. up <laughs> what if I make it disappear yeah. <laughs> it's a good tactic there <laughs> bye bye <laughs> exactly yeah I, I like that I approve 100% if approve. you're at the point where you have to do that you know, if they were, oh, they were absolutely at that yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. I, and that's why I'm like, yeah, seriously, they're dying in droves. Yeah. They're making nothing. They're getting evicted from their homes. Yeah. They're getting a- brutalized by by these like corporate police. Like, it's nuts, man. So when Bear again refused to negotiate, Mitchell followed through, flooding and damaging company property in ways that would take months to repair. <laughs> With the conflict, water damage sucks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Water damage sucks. <laughs> Try to pump that shit out of there, out of a mine shaft. Oh my god, I don't, I don't even know how that would go down. But yeah, it took a long time. So with the... That would take a lot of time, a lot of resources. It would just... It would cost them so much money. But that's why it's such a smart move to fantastic. hit them. In, yeah, it's super if, smart. If you... You're not killing it's anyone. great tactic. No. While these corporate police are shooting people that are poor and just asking for, like, a living wage. No, they just hit them in their wallets. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> it's fantastic. It's very smart. Yeah. It. <laughs> Way to go, guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Good job, Mitchell. So with the <laughs> conflicts escalating, a fence around a colliery was set on fire. Later that same day, the coal and iron police shot a 13-year-old boy who was walking near the fence, and he was rushed to the hospital. So he didn't die. Then on July 2nd, the coal and iron police shot and killed a man for attempting to climb the colliery fence. Soon after, 300 strikers started throwing rocks at a, tr- at a train preventing it from reaching the mines. In response, 10,000 troops, the entire National Guard, was called into Pennsylvania. <laughs> yep. Oh, they're throwing some rocks at these trains. What are we going to do? <laughs> Mobilize everyone. <laughs> yeah. This is so wild learning all of this. Like, yeah. This is... It puts everything today. History just... really does repeat itself. It's just so wild. I, it's... I, I didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I knew, yeah, I I didn't know, you know, this story. I didn't know these facts. Yeah. This is very. Yeah. It's, I didn't know a lot of this stuff too. You know, it's, it's kind of shocking the extent of the horrific stuff that was going on for just people that were just trying to make a living wage, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So because Americans had come to rely on anthracite coal, this strike was a threat to the winter fuel supply. The mine operators held stockpiles of coal, but these would only last a few months. President Theodore Roosevelt, who viewed himself as the steward of the people, 
was very disturbed by the situation. He stated that, quote, a coal famine in winter is an ugly thing, and I fear we shall see terrible suffering and grave disaster. Smart guy. Smart guy, yes. I like, I like his role here, for sure. At this mm-hmm. time, a president had never intervened to resolve a, a conflict between business and labor. There was no existing precedent for this kind of move. Still, Roosevelt was determined. He investigated the situation and convened a conference of representatives from government, labor, and industry. In spite of this, the operators refused to negotiate with their workers. At the conference, Bear spoke for the mine owners and operators, stating that, quote, The government is a contemptible failure if it can only protect lives and property by compromising with the violators of law and the instigators of violence and crime. I now ask you, speaking to Roosevelt, to perform the duties vested in you as president of the United States to at once squelch the anarchistic condition of affairs existing in the anthracite coal regions by the strong arm of the military at your command. (laughs) Just... Just kill him. <laughs> yeah, right? Well, so what was his response? He had a pretty great response. So in attempt... Of course he did. <laughs> I'm just going to fill in to our listeners. I absolutely 100% appreciate Theodore Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a history buff by any means, but I am a Teddy fan. Yeah, totally. <laughs> he had some fantastic shit going on. I, yeah, I love a lot about him. I really do, too. Yeah. <laughs> he found that our national parks, y'all. That's badass. That is, oh, my God, like the most important thing in America that we have it's, today. <laughs> it's so vital to my life. Like, totally. Totally. I love it very much. Thanks. Mad respect to Teddy Bear. Fuck yeah. Did you know that the teddy bear is named after him? Did you know that? <laughs> I did know that, and I love Got that, too. Got a lot too. of fun <laughs> facts about Theodore Roosevelt, but that's another episode. You should do, yeah, you should totally do a Teddy Roosevelt episode. I'm I might sure. have to so now. much shit. <laughs> so much good shit. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a pretty cool guy. <laughs> cool guy. <laughs> I, this is kind of like a shout-out to Hillary here, because I know she's a Roosevelt fan, so Teddy fan. <laughs> yeah. My ears perked when uh, when you got to this part of the story. I'm like, oh, I know that guy. I hope he doesn't do something awful. Like, so seriously, my butthole puckered a little bit. I was like, uh oh. That's what I was. Expecting. What is she gonna say? Uh oh. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, the butthole puckered. I love it. It's totally. That's the right response. Yeah. I mean, it happened. No. <laughs> it, it, it literally in my butthole happened. <laughs> All right, by now, our, our, you know, the people that are going to tune out because of our, uh, our humor. Our, our butt jokes. Our butt jokes, you know, just see you later, you know. I, I'd like, I hope we I don't hang out with you. We appreciate you motherfuckers. You better come back later. <laughs> you know, And if I you're still you. listening, you're our kind of people, and we super appreciate you. Yeah, we love you. <laughs> And don't go you. fuck yourself like those people that don't like what we're doing. <laughs> Word. <laughs> you can stay. Have another cocktail with us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we like you. <laughs> so in an attempt to defuse the strike, which had already been going on for months, Roosevelt sent his secretary of war to talk with the owner of the Reading Railroad. His name was J.P. Morgan. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> around today we <laughs> we know the name well yeah we do this is <laughs> so long ago 
So in addition to fuck. See, people don't some think of that these like people just okay like this is gonna be really harsh but like some of these people just need to fucking die already like really he's he's long yeah. and dead but you know his family's gonna be rich for fucking ever because that's how this uh, works <laughs> you know if you're yeah. rich enough you just create a a legacy and an empire yes a little monarchy or whatever so. In addition to owning the railroad and employing the miners, this wealthy capitalist had chosen to install the oppressive George Bayer, who we were talking about before, as the mine Mm -hmm. operator. So Morgan and Roosevelt's Secretary of War composed a contract calling upon the president to form a committee that could resolve the dispute. They proposed a committee of five, but this lacked anyone who would represent the laborers. To remedy... Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But... But I here. was so hopeful. Uh, I was but, like, but it's all right, good. All right. He's, uh, he's working with them. He's working with them. Okay. He's, okay. He's okay, not. Right. He's not irredeemable here. So okay. to remedy this imbalance, Mitchell and the union insisted that a labor representative and a Catholic bishop be added to the committee. Oh, there we go. I just yeah. spoke too soon. Yeah. Beautiful. Exactly. So, applause. So applause. totally, they accepted that. I mean, I think they probably should have had equal representation for the labor and for the companies, but. That is not how it worked. No, but that's like kind of a big step forward yeah. in and of itself. Like that, for that's sure. progress. So, and I, pr- I applaud that. And they got what they want, They what they asked for. So that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So when the Anthracite Coal Strike Commission was finally established on October 23rd, 1903, Mitchell called off the strike. 1903. God, that just wasn't that long ago. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Shit, girl. <laughs> It had lasted for a total of 163 days. That's like half a year. Yeah. The commission held hearings from November till March, and 558 witnesses were heard. In his closing remarks to the committee, Bayer said of the workers, quote, These men don't suffer. Why, hell, half of them don't even speak English. (laughs) Oh, 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 Jesus. (laughs) You stupid fuck. Damn. Can you imagine <laughs> having that mentality? I can't. No, it, it just kind of, it's just a little too shocking. I'm just like. Doesn't it just break your heart a little? Just like that p- someone can be like that. <laughs> it breaks my fucking heart. It, I mean, it, it's unfortunately it doesn't surprise me, but it just kind of, it just really takes it all out of me. Right. Yeah. Like, I, I just I just like don't even know what to fucking say. Like, what, yeah. how, how fucking dare you? How how on earth do you even operate like that? Like, how do you see other humans like that? Right. Like, right. Any other humans, you know, like they if you can't speak English, you can't suffer. That's the most fucking nonsensical, stupid shit. You know, I mean, like people say, like. All kinds of I animals just, don't have the same. I guess that's of... just how corruptive power really is. Like you yeah. just you just don't give a fuck. Don't care about the people underneath uh, you. No. Because you get to this point and you're like, Oh, they're gonna try to get my wealth. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean and it, I don't think it's even that. It's just complete disregard. I think it's just yeah. I have this wealth and I know nothing's gonna fucking touch it. Yeah. And yeah. nothing else matters, so yeah. whatever. And then also you're fearful constantly that, like, maybe you won't always have that and you don't have it. It's not justified yeah. or something, you know? So you're, like, paranoid, you know? <laughs> and so you, oh, so you like, hire police forces and shit. I mean, it's it's just them using force to ensure that there isn't an uprising, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's just keeping that power. Yep. That's all that is. Yeah. And it's 
fucking disgusting. Keep keep the wealth in these hands and make sure that these other people don't have any say. So on March 22nd, the verdict was announced. Mine workers had won a nine-hour workday and a 10% increase in their wages, which was basically so the, okay. the commission split All the right. difference and gave them half of what they asked for. The companies had to basically just like suck it up and take that <laughs> that loss. So at least there's a, a compromise there. Yeah, I, and I, I'm stoked for that because that's like kind of the foundation, like the start of fighting for those kinds of rights. Yeah. And and you it's know? and that it's not unfortunately like it's not what I was hoping that the story would go, right? Yeah. But I do think that that is a that was a good start. And yeah. it, um, it, it was a victory for them for sure. Yeah. And that it was a victory and that they could actually have a conversation and co- and like it wasn't just a brutal like violent thing that resulted uh-huh. in a certain way. It was an actual agreement that both parties agreed to, so there w- was some peace on the other end of it. Mm-hmm. You know, like what do you th- what do you think was the cause of that shift from just the chaos to the ability to have that? Sort I think of fucking Roosevelt in this situation. Which, because I was going to say, yeah. like, like how I was just going to ask, like, how much can you really put on, you know, Roosevelt, or was it was it the the union, or you know, I mean, like what? it was it was. It combined like the union being persistent and being uh, well organized, n- mm-hmm. you know, knowing what they want, asking for reasonable demands. You know, they weren't asking uh-huh. for the moon and back. You know, they weren't. That's so hugely important. Yeah, That's they were so asking for. You have to be reasonable. Are you just gonna get shot down? Yeah. If if you don't ask for reasonable demands, which I've I've dealt with as an activist, it's mm-hmm. hard to like come to terms with that. But like these, yeah. at least they were asking for something that was with, within the realm of uh-huh. possibility, and they got a lot of what they wanted. So they were, Hell and yes. they agreed to a discussion that was going to come up with a solution, and that the, they agreed that they were going to accept the solution of that. You know, it's like that's awesome. It's like a fucking having an election instead of having a fucking you know whatever a coup or something. You know, like. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's like that. That's accurate. People, that's people went into it agreeing that this is what's going to happen. You know, so mm-hmm. that's super positive. Thanks, Teddy. You did it. You did a good one there. <laughs> Thanks, Teddy. Even though you kind of encroached on, like he had, he was breaking with precedent. There was no precedent for a president to be able to take that kind of power to intervene there. He did that mm-hmm. and kind of spread the realm, the reach of presidential power a little bit, but in a Good way because he's a good guy. So I guess if okay. someone else was a fucking horrible tyrant and they did that, they could weigh in horribly. Like if you were fucking Trump yeah, and you yeah. weigh in on this kind of dispute, you know. <laughs> so I guess it's it's not completely easy. Yeah, that's kind of hard to. But he did. It- he knew what he needed to do. You know. Yeah. And he wanted to solve a problem. That's kind of who Teddy Roosevelt was, too. Like, he was going to do, like, because he, he was, like, he very much so, like, had high morals. Um, and he was going to do whatever he thought he needed to do to hold those high morals. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. And, that, and, you know, and that's kind of one of the things that I respected about him, or that I respect about him, you know? Yeah. I mean, he, what did he call himself? The steward of the people? Yeah. Uh-huh. Which is just... Yeah. I mean, I really think he was trying to embody that in what in what he was doing yeah. here. You know, he was going to forcefully do something to better people's lives, not better his 
one single yeah, life. Just exactly. Himself, you know? He was trying to... So how I'm for that. He's looking out for the greater good. He's trying to... Yeah. He knows that people need their fuel because they're so dependent on it at this point. Right. He knows that, like, the workers need to be paid better. He knows... And he helped fight for that. He helped fight for that, yeah. He helped to give them a place where they could legitimately get what they wanted. I don't know if they could have done that with the coal and iron police there otherwise. No. You know, with these no, fucking... No, I, I, I mean, I don't think so. If I were to just throw that yeah. out there, no, I don't think so. Just having these corporate police forces there to crush you whenever you do anything yeah. and just and you're walking out with stones as your weapon and they have guns and they're and you're calling out the fucking national guard and everything you couldn't you know i think in this instance it was so good that there was this like leadership from the top that was saying let this let's have a discussion yeah i don't trust yeah. that the present day leadership and let's move boulders yeah yeah, yeah. exactly exactly no present day leaders our present day leader would not do that. Yeah. No, he's too busy eating Big Macs in his fucking bed right And worrying now. about how the water from his shower doesn't allow him to wash his hair enough. So he needs to... What hair? Oh, what hair exactly? <laughs> what fucking hair? <laughs> Whatever he's stapled to his fucking forehead. You know? <laughs> fucking disgusting thing on there. Oh, man. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, to, to close... The anthracite coal strike of 1902 had a huge impact on the shape of policing in Pennsylvania. Government-backed corporate strike-breaking forces were suddenly subjected to greater scrutiny. When Samuel Pennypacker became the governor soon after, he was asked to sign commissions to hire more coal and iron policemen. This was his response. Take them away. I will never put the police powers of the state in the hands of the nominees of one of the parties to a controversy. We must have an independent constabulary. So that's the end. He he basically nice. said, let's not fucking do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fantastic. That's a happy yeah, ending. Yeah, it's okay. You know, I, I, uh, I definitely wasn't expecting a happy I, I tried um, to give you something that's a happy ending. Yeah, yeah you, you picked up, you scooped up my heart off the ground. Right there. Yeah, you know. You stitched it together a little bit. One of your it's heroes. Got a lot more stuff. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. I knew I knew that was gonna be rough. Yeah. My next episode is actually from the same region, and it's it's kind of like a modern day outgrowth of this. But uh, <laughs> to give you okay. a tiny preview, but that's all. A little bit of a preview. Yeah. So what you're trying to say is get your tissues. Yeah. You're gonna be crying. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> Was that no? That was hugely informative. That was really cool. Um, definitely. So, what I love that we're um, why we're switching back and forth like this is that is a topic that I never would have researched, and so mm-hmm. I just learned a shit. Yeah, really yeah, totally. And we're I'm into it. And we're gonna do such different topics and such different things and some. Oh yeah, uplifting. <laughs> when st- you hear my topic, my next topic, you're gonna be like. <laughs> I, so totally different it's but i that's but it's fabulous it's really that's great that's what i love about doing a podcast with you is that like we're gonna come to the table with such radically different things and radically different perspectives mm-hmm. sometimes but also like the understanding and the compassion and the like we're not like gonna fight each other because we disagree we're not gonna fucking have shit you know <laughs> like yeah and if we disagree we're gonna have an adult conversation about it's it it's gonna be productive we can, we can be reasonable like yeah, that exactly because we're, we're mature and smart and we can manage something like yeah. that yeah um, <laughs> but uh That's no like, i do i do really love that like 
As you can. <laughs> Mine's gone, girl. <laughs> Um, no, but I do love that, like, our first episode was, you know, the 12 people run, and then we, boom, go to <laughs> corporate police forces, like, and then, oh, I can't say the next topic, but it's just, it's so great, like, this is, this is fun, it's, this is great. It's gonna be a wild ride. I, I really hope that our audience is enjoying it as much as I yeah, am. Yeah, definitely, and I, I mean, I think, like, it's good to give people some breaks from the hard shit and, and give them some hard shit, too, you know? Yeah, right, right. Yeah, no, I mean, like, it's it's good to broach these tougher topics, for sure. Yeah, and, like, I did a much more, like, dry and, like, academic approach episode where I'm just, like, writing it all out and reading it super straight up, and Hillary's much more conversational, and I love that, mm-hmm. you know? Like, it's mm-hmm. much more engaging for me. Yeah, no. But this is like, my style. I think it's really cool that, like, we both have our different styles. Like, I think that, you know, different listeners are going to, appreciate the different episodes right like you know totally. kinda, it's like it's a it's a whole new podcast almost every episode right like it's just but you can trust that we're gonna do our due diligence about the topics you know we may not be experts but we fucking care deeply yeah otherwise we wouldn't have started this podcast this podcast is a lot of work we yeah. would not have yeah. started <laughs> the podcast if we didn't care so um, it's also a lot of fun Oh, it is so much fun. It's so, so, so much fun, especially with you, Mother. <laughs> um, if anyone has any questions about our episodes or um, anything that they want to ask us about these topics, feel free to email us at cocktailsandcapitalism at gmail.com. It'd be really interesting to hear some of our listeners weigh in or throw in their two cents or yeah, absolutely. anything like that. That'd be really cool. Or you could uh, tweet at cocktails and capitalism or cocked capitalism. <laughs> It's cocked capitalism. Indeed. C-O-C-K-T. All right, babe. Well, should we sign off? Yeah. Let's sign off. Until next time. Until next time. (laughs) And remember, there's no wealth but life. Truly. Love you, girl. Love you, too. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) Bye.